Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern and I am joined by two people who obviously know the difference between a nightgown and a nightshirt, Tim McIntosh <laughs> and Heidi White. Hi, Tim. Welcome back nice. to the show. It's Thank like you, David. You practiced that or knew it was coming or something. Um, those are two different things. <laughs> uh, That's why I said or. <laughs> it did occur to me, but I didn't practice it. Um, unlike Sweet Joe Swag, which I practice the whole time, just all day, everywhere I drive. Uh, speaking right. of which, I uh, want to remind everybody about you know some of the the business side of things before we dive into the conversation on Peace Like a River. Don't forget that you can join the conversation uh, by following us on social media, on Twitter and on Instagram. We are at Close Reads Pods. And on Facebook, you can find us in the Close Reads Podcast discussion group where you can join the conversation. Lots of good uh, chatter going on about this book already over there. And then of course, uh, make sure that you sign up for the Close Reads newsletter, which you can sign up for at closereads.substack.com. Should have one of those going out this week. And then also, you can, of course, support the show and get some sweet show swag and also some bonus content on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash close reads. We will be launching the first episode of our Crime and Punishment conversation on the week of January 27th. So that's in two weeks time. The first episode of that conversation will go up and then that will happen every two weeks until we have finished Crime and Punishment in July. And then after that, we'll go into Charles Dickens' hard time. Hard times, I guess it would be it would be plural. Um, hard time is a hard time is not as as uh, bad as multiple hard times. Multiple so, hard times. It's true. Exactly. I've actually done Matt the math Dickens. on that, and I can confirm that. <laughs> <laughs> That's how plural works, huh? Yeah. Well, we are here to discuss peace like a river. Before we get into this, I do need to make a correction on an error that I've been making because I actually looked up how to pronounce this author's name prior to doing the show and um, found bad information because <laughs> I've been saying leaf anger, but someone posted a video of the man himself. And as best as I can tell, based on the audio of that, he's saying leaf anger. Uh, so, uh, so much for research. I'm never doing it again. But we, we, we you just um, have to do the right research. Right. Well, yeah, I just need to trust, trust the wrong, trust the right people. Right. So I need to um, correct that. This is Peace Like a River by Leif Anger. So my apologies um, to Mr. Anger uh, and to all of you who have been sitting there cringing as you've been listening. But, you know, I'm not afraid to say that I've made a mistake. So, you know, we're just going to move forward and we're going to say Leif as much as we can. And hopefully I won't forget. But we could just say uh, Mr. Anger. That might be the. Yeah, the best, the best, most respectful approach. So you know what I'm doing right now? I'm writing on the title page of my book, pronunciation, colon, life, anger. Good, good. <laughs> We're here to discuss pages 149 through 204. And that's, that begins with a chapter called At War With This Whole World. And I want to flip the way we've been going, doing things upside down a little bit this week, just, you know, to mix it up. The last three episodes, I've asked you for a 
favorite passage at the end of the show. And this time I want to ask you to do that now. So Heidi, do you have a passage that I can turn to you first and ask for, or do I need to turn (laughs) to Tim while you're looking? (laughs) You are in luck because I wrote down two passages in preparation for today's recording because I'm always taken by surprise, even though it's definitely a tradition. Somehow it always takes me by surprise. (laughs) I have final thoughts, but not passages. But now, several weeks into this book, I'm all, I am at the ready. Heidi, Heidi, what's your, what's your second one? What's the Um, one you're not going to read? The one about the description of hell. Oh, late in the reading. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And instead, I'm picking a passage on that exact same page for different reasons. So the description of hell or the, in the Badlands was because of the writing in the craft, which I know is a really good reason to pick a passage. But I'm going to choose a, a thematic passage that on, starting on page 197 about Roxana and their great longing for her. I just loved this whole passage. So the beginning of the chapter under the gibbon moon? Yep. Uh, On page 197, we didn't know where she was taking us. We didn't know where she was taking us. Dad, driving, just followed her directions. We were a quiet troop. Swede was curled away from me, and I couldn't have spoken if asked, for my throat ached with coming departure and with the beauty I had perceived in Roxana. So upright and calm she appeared there in the front seat, and so graceful and so separate from dad. Had the scene been mine to write, she'd have scooted closer to him. She'd have reached for his hand. Were dad's heart my tablet, I'd have taken it up and erased Davy's name. So terribly did I wish to stay. And had it been whispered to me that all roofing had burned to the last toothpick so that we had no home to return to, I'd have rolled down the window and shouted thanks to heaven without a thought for Dr. Noakes or Bethany Orchard or anybody. So there's several things I loved about that passage. One is um, the great longing and everything that Roxana represents to them and this converging of desire and grief that is oriented towards her. Um, And then also that meta contemplation of storytelling that's just so brilliant. Had the scene been mine to write? (laughs) Mm. Um, It's just so so lovely and it it's met on a couple levels one is of course the scene is life angers to write and he's writing it into desire and longing and grief rather than fulfillment um and then also because of the contemplation that the three of us have been talking about with storytelling embedded within the narrative the idea that swede can't tell the story she wants to she has to tell the true story Um, And so that kind of converges in that little paragraph connected to being mothered. Um, So I just, I just love how all of that's woven together. Plus it just tugged on my heartstrings. I loved it. Mm. I was thinking a lot about the concept of telling the truth Mm. um, because I kept asking myself over and over again, what's true or is all of this true even within the context of the story and how much of it might Ruben be you know remembering differently than it really happened or you know 
adding embellishing a little bit say and and it seems like mm. in, in moments anger anticipates that sort of line of thinking like there's the bit where swede kind of discovers the miracles that jeremiah that her father seems at least seem to happen adjacent to him if not because of him and uh it's in like one it's in 165 somewhere in that range and um they're talking about jonah and moses and obadiah and all that sort of thing and they're debating you know what she's saying what you know she's she throws jonah under the bus a little bit and uh reuben's troubled by by her uh lack of respect for the various prophets. <laughs> and uh, it seems like he's anticipating the sort of skepticism that the readers are going to have. He says something like, I was troubled because how could we place dad or any other living person among those Old Testament gentlemen? And that seems to be like the question that all readers who are right. skeptical of whether these miracles could actually be true and are sort of torn between, well, those are the world of this story, which may or may not be a fairy tale or have some fantasy elements. And then the realism side of the story and the realism of, you know, just everyday life. And it's like these two worlds are colliding and it creates this tension in the readers. And so he's constantly seems to be commenting on or thinking about the nature of telling the truth and, and responding to our skepticism about what's true and what's not true. Right. Hey, do you guys, have we read another book in close reads that has miracles as such a, such fulcrum points in the plot. Oh, good Where question. Character miracles like capital M miracles. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. know. I, what's the difference? What's a capital M miracle, David? Are these? Well, I don't know. Like methods? like the concept of a small miracle, like people people changing people's people hearts changing. changing yeah, or or doing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, capital M. Yeah. I'm not I, sure. I really love magical realism, though. I really love it as a genre. Mm -hmm. um, Oh, and but I can't remember if we've done if if we've done one of this kind of magnitude. Yeah, you know, even magical realism, Heidi is. I, I don't know that it's it's sort of like events feel miraculous, but they those the magical realism that I'm familiar with. Um, the the events that happen that kind of defy the laws of physics or something like that even those kind of don't feel like miracles in the same way that Mr. Lambs feel like Mr. Lambs are miracles. Like they're the miracles in this book are very intentional. Whereas in magical realism, someone turn a goat turns into a dove and flies away and it might signal something, but it's not always as mm -hmm. purposeful as yeah. Mr. Lamb. There's right. like a, they, it's like magical realism is like, fantasy ele elements of fantasy like motifs or, or parts yeah. of, a, of a different genre or mythology get incorporated into w a, what is otherwise realistic fiction and yeah. here like th this doesn't feel like a fantasy or a mythical element right. it feels like there's a spiritual you know it's a spiritual element that's yes that's brought to brought to fulfillment but don't you think yeah. that because we're christians that that's we recognize this as just simply a manifestation of our sacramental way of viewing the world. Whereas if someone who doesn't yeah. share the faith, you would think this was magical realism. Oh, I see what you're saying. 
right? Like this to us is, and all of these miracles in a sense could be explained by, as David said, wishful thinking or remembering the past in a romantic light. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he is depending upon the faith of the reader to tell this story and he leaves it. He's risking with it, the opportunity for the reader to discount everything as just a child's flawed, wishful thinking memory. Was it last week when we were talking about the Jungian? You could yes. yeah. the Jungian readers could have a field day or something like this. Yeah, you. Oh, you, and this reading was even more that way. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. In some ways, it feels like he, this book is almost like a just a way of messing with people who like to read books that way. Yes, in a like, lot of ways. Um, we need to come back to Roxana. Um, yeah. obviously. So let's let's. I kind of want to keep poking on this a little bit, just because I don't know. That's fine. I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll leave it alone. No, it's fine. I think that there's something about magical realism that is decidedly not explained. When that's true, you know, like there's something where it does, where it it needs no justification. Maybe we should back up and like say a little bit more for readers that are unfamiliar with magical realism. I think of the kind of best known author that practices magical realism is either. Italo Calvino, the Italian writer, or more likely Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Yeah, like he'd be a name. Yeah, yeah. Very common with uh, in Latin American. Yeah, literature. and I kind of hope we can do one of his books. I think he is unbelievable. He is incredible. But these yeah, these good. magical events will happen in his books. A goat will turn into a dove, and there's no explanation given in the first time it happens it's jarring at least it was jarring to me um but marquez makes no effort to explain this this is just part of the tapestry of the story and the world that he's creating in which magical things happen and i think like the moniker magical realism is a great moniker because it's absolute realism it's and goats turn into doves you know, both of those things are happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they don't, I, it doesn't need to explain why. Yeah, they're, they're not exactly right. The narrator doesn't even draw attention to it. Like that's a narrator, right? Which that's is a big part, part of, of it. Why it's so kind of gripping because you wonder what world you've entered into. And I think magical realism in that way is sort of a sister to maybe fantasy or sci-fi. It's just a there are some differences, I'm sure. But this, however, the miracles in Peace Like a River are different for exactly the reasons that you guys are highlighting. They have to be, I don't know, they have to be. Leif Anger feels like he has to give a little bit of an explanation because why? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, the characters, Ruben's obsessed with it. The miracles. I mean, it's literally his reason for being. Yeah. Yeah. And not, not like in a, you know, like it's the reason he exists. Well, you know, he's alive. (laughs) Um, So, so yeah, it's like if magical realism is these fantastical or, um, mythical things happening in the real world without any explanation or exploration from the narrator um, or from, you know, from any perspective in the story, 
then this is definitely not that because our narrator here is obsessed. And in fact, it, he can constantly draws attention to the fact that the whole narrative is driven by. Yeah. That. I mean, even, even in this reading, when Andres, Andresen, the uh, putrid fed, uh, when he, <laughs> when he, uh, when he shows up, he recognizes that, the, that there is something about Jeremiah that is mysterious and spiritual and, and might be, might lead them to Davy. And, and so does the, and the reason he thinks that is because uh, this, the school principal that Jeremiah, you know, gets in the little feud with and then heals, he recognizes it and he tells Andres, Anderson. And so all these characters are, are constantly recognizing, constantly identifying that there is something magical going on. I'm using that word loosely, something mysterious, something spiritual, yeah. something otherworldly going on. And, that, and that's what's driving the tension of the, one of the things that's driving the tension of the book. So in that way, it's definitely not magical realism. According yeah. to that, according to like the sort of s- typical definition or motifs that are consistent with that as a genre, it's like as a genre capital G, I guess. Magical realism being capital M, capital R, if you will. Yes, right. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> but there are still. But what I love is that this book still fuses these genre elements into this story. Because on the one hand, you've got this western, and then on the other hand, you have this. Um, potential fantasy you've got Mm -hmm. this odyssey you've got all these these age-old motifs and and genre pushed together into one story and it's one of the things that makes it so enjoyable because you don't know where any given line or paragraph or moment is going to send you genre wise so to speak right yeah that's right hey by the way by the way while we're kind of on this subject did i miss something when anderson came finds them kind of acknowledges that Mr. Lamb is a man of faith. He tells the story about the girl who was left in the cabin, but does he give any, did I just miss how they ended up finding the girl? Cause I felt like there was this sort of like dangling story that had no conclusion to it, but I, maybe I missed it. Do you, you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah. The somebody's sister was yeah, and, driving in the car and then, the guy drives off the road. Yeah. Yeah. The guy drives off the road. And then later, and however you say Anderson, they, he gets in the car with another little girl who's been told to him has like the gift of second sight. Sister, I see. I see. How did I miss that? Heidi? Sorry. It's on two Oh three. And actually I think this is, we, we need to talk about this whole fiery episode. Because yeah. oh, should we just dive into that? Sure. Clearly, I need to because I missed it. Because so this is right after what Heidi's Heidi read with that passage because they're with Roxana and and then on one ninety eight they enter into the uh, the inferno. <laughs> they enter yeah. the underworld, and I was thinking a lot about how this is where so many of these different genre things actually do collide in this passage here. Cause they enter the underworld and then this person who's chasing them sort of pursues them into the underworld. And then there's that really interesting line where he's telling that story that you're referencing to him. And he's explaining why he wants Jeremiah to go with him. Yeah. And Jeremiah says, you don't know what you're associating with. And I thought that was a really yeah. interesting line there because 
in some ways it's kind of, you, you know, you could potentially read it as just, you know, kind of a throwaway. I don't want to go with you type line, but it does seem like one of those maybe thesis statement lines for a book that is constantly thinking about the, the notion of whether these miracles actually happened. And, um, you know, all these questions about the spiritual, the spiritual world colliding with our world mm-hmm. here, Jeremiah says, you don't know what you're associating with. You don't know what this is. There's something about the prophets. You know, it sounds like something the prophet would have said, like Moses would have said that to Pharaoh, you don't know what it is that you're associating with. And, and this, this is bigger than what you can explain. Go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, Mr. Anderson seems to think that, what do they call it? That he's dealing with spookism, like sort of like someone who can do a nice card trick or, you know, pull a rabbit out of a hat. And Mr. Land is trying to kind of dissuade him from that notion. There's something, and there's something I think now that, that healing of the principle is making, is coming into clearer focus for me because the healing was accompanied by this kind of this violence, right? Mm. And that's, it seems like maybe that's part of what Mr. Lamb is warning Anderson about, that you kind of can't separate, not necessarily violence, but there's a, there's a, there's potential force behind these miracles that would not accompany a card trick, someone who can pull a rabbit out of a hat. Yeah, or read like tarot cards. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is sort of polite magic. It's a trick. <laughs> it's spookism, and and they take pains. Do the kids to kind of, or or at least our our narrator is taking pains to point out that um, they're kind of un, the kids are unfamiliar with spookism. This is not the sort of spookism is not the source of the miracles that their dad is involved in, and they don't really know what spookism is but they kind of look down their nose at it. Yeah. Anderson says you're a man of faith. And the father says it isn't faith. You're speaking of It's something else. Foolishness. Spooky. Yeah. Yeah. Heidi, you were going to say something. I, I thought it was more sinister even than that because they're in this hell like place and he's emerging from the shadows. There's no way he could have found them. I mean, there is, but like he's a very devil-like figure right now. Anderson and, or the father? Yeah, no, Anderson. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And the the story about the little girl is super creepy because there's one of two ways this little girl could have found her sister. One is that she was led there by some supernatural force, which seems to be implied is dark or occult. Or two, she was a party to her kidnapping. In either case, there's uh, a lot of darkness or, there. Or it's they got lucky. Right. That's, that's the other. Yes. That's, I mean, that's, but I, I didn't. And, it and seems maybe really I, unlikely, right? Getting yeah, lucky I, seems the least likely of those three options. Because well, the, I mean, that's, that would be the materialist explanation for yeah. it either that or that the sister was an accomplice or had also been kidnapped and, and abused herself. So there's like, I thought that story was extremely sinister and the, the 
environment in which the story was told, the presence of Andreessen and the fact that Ruben says he suddenly no longer hates him, but is afraid of him. Like the story is shifting here, I think. And I, I'm not going to say what I, I haven't read. I've only been keeping up with the reading. I think I know how the story is going to end at this point. And I'm like kind of getting a little anxious about it. <laughs> it's different from what I thought. And I could be wrong, but, and I'm not going to say it on the air, but there's, I think the story took a shift here, a big mm. one. Mm. And so I, I, I read it as like an invitation into darkness happening here. Like the story is descending into hell at this point and something has to be like a different kind of reconciliation than we thought. Heidi, is the switch, the change that you're seeing, is it, is it just the nature of Andreessen and the fact that they're going into the Badlands or is it, which is, those two things are significant right. enough or is there more, is there more I, to no, it? No, I thinking? think there's more to it. It's the presence of Roxana. It's how, it's the, there's just, I, I don't yeah. know, I just, I can't may- maybe put exactly my finger on it, but yeah, yeah. I I didn't think it was necessarily the nature of like a bad card trick as much as it's like a cold, like dark, like choosing a path between darkness mm-hmm. and light. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I, I was thinking about the. Uh, I-, I looked up the meaning of the word of the name Roxana actually. Huh. And um, uh, for what it's worth, um, according to. Uh, beyond the name. It was the name of Alexander the Great's first wife. Um, (laughs) So, you know, for just people who are curious about things like that. But it looks like it is the Latin form of Roxanne, which is the Greek form of the Persian name, which means bright or dawn. So you you mentioned the idea of choosing between light and dark. And it seems as if, you know, it's a pretty explicit way of saying that she is uh she's she's on one side of that <laughs> uh you know of that choice and also probably i suppose if you want to oversimplify it that she is she is a source of of light and i think it's interesting that she takes them to this like fiery underworld place probably anticipation of thinking well this is a cool place you'll think this is interesting um but that it becomes as you said more sinister it's it, you know, because of everything else that's going on right. in their lives. So it's not just this cool place. It actually is a sort of, uh, you know, descent uh, into an underworld, descent into the rest of the story in a way. Right. Yeah. Now I, I one of my the um passage that I wanted to read is from that, but I also I had another question. Did anyone think of, um this descent in the underworld and Mr. Anderson asking for sort of like a little bit of magic for Mr. Lamb. Did that remind you at all of Jesus in the wilderness? One of the temptation, the devil asks him to basically perform a little magic. Yeah. That's what right? I thought. It's a deal yeah. with the devil that's being yeah. offered to Jeremiah land. Which explains why Jeremiah land, if he perceives it that way, that explains why he's kind of refusing to even at the hope of finding his son acquiesce to Mr. Andreessen's request for a little magic here. 
there's something much more at stake right than than just um finding his son and using his like mm. like, like I, I don't know like channeling this power there's that he something has like cosmic God. at stake yeah right and it would be a it would be some sort of betrayal to give into mr anderson and we don't know the reasons yet that's the that's the kind of thing that we're on the outside we're kind of looking at it through the kids eyes especially the boys and we don't know yeah we don't know why he's not giving into this but anyway the, the more I think about it, Heidi, the more you're right. I think there's something, this is a pivot. Like page well, two of four is, right. or maybe even earlier, you know, like maybe in the 190s, there's a pivot. I think so. And I think it's occurring to me more and more that the only reason that the feds are on the tail, on Davy's tail at all, is because Jeremiah Land. Oh. So that's Wait, why, because how else would they, there, there's no clues other than that's where Jeremiah is taking them. Oh, I don't think they're that's what following. they're following. I don't think so. I think that though, I think that, um, I think that they've been, they've been saying they've been close. Right. But Jeremiah is also, I mean, you've read the story before and you responded really quickly to that. So <laughs> no, I know David I gave it away. Yeah, like, <laughs> but uh, I, I, the other thing embedded within the story is that Jeremiah has always said how Anderson is lying to them. If, if that's the case to me, that's a big flaw because to me, it, it, they, they if the police are incompetent, if the authorities are incompetent, then the miracles, for example, when they were driving down the road and the police don't stop them, don't see them, then if then those are kind of meaningless. Yeah, that's true. They have to be competent. They have to know. They have to be like close. I don't think that there's. I think they generally know where he is, but that they're trying to um, use the family. They need to get. They're trying to get. They're trying to ultimately pin him down. Like ultimately get him. And this, by the way, is a classic Western. Yes trope mm-hmm. i mean this idea of right. of um this idea of like i mean it's a it's a it's a jesse james thing it's a uh-huh. you know that's that's the story of the the assassination of jesse james by the coward robert ford great book and movie by the way um or the story of bush cassidy and the sundance kid it's like you're getting closer you're getting closer but you can't quite get there so you convince someone that's close to them to get you the last few minutes and you know that it's all going to end in a blaze of fire. You know that, that something bad is going to happen. And, but the authorities get to the outlaw by getting to the person who loves the outlaw and convince them that it's the best for them to take, to help them out. So, you know, and I don't think that it's, I, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why Jesse James and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid keep coming up in this book for many other reasons as well. There's a sort of romanticism about their outlawness <laughs> that's uh, kind of uniquely American. Um, right. And this book doesn't let us romanticize Davy, which I think is pretty great. Yeah. So anyway, I think I'm just saying, I think that they have to be competent, you know, otherwise the fact that they escaped them is, uh, isn't that big of a deal. Isn't, yeah. Isn't big and, of a deal. and presumably part of them being competent is that this is how I read the story, they have kind of backtracked 
and found the principal and maybe other people who know Jeremiah Land. And they've interviewed them. And I presume that they interviewed them with an eye toward the question, is Mr. Land going to aid and abet Davy if he meets him? And then they kind of discover he might not because he's a man of faith or, you know, anyway, through doing those kind of like back interviews, that's how they discover that Mr. Land is what kind of a person he is and that he seems to have this unique, miraculous power. That's how I read it. Didn't you think it's interesting that the principal who fires, like he recognizes. Yeah. He kind of came around. I mean, he recognizes that, you know, who knows if he actually changed, but he recognizes there was some kind of power mm-hmm. <laughs> in the mm-hmm. fingers of Jeremiah Land, which is, which is really interesting because we didn't get that in the moment. Like he did, you know, Not at didn't all. give us sort of the satisfaction of change. The principal seeing the truth. Yeah. 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 Hey, um, yeah, so tell us your section. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, what's your passage? I wonder if it's the same one that you highlighted, Heidi. Mine starts on 199. Very last paragraph, about halfway through the paragraph. How else to describe a valley in which the deepest winter stream plumes as if from a battlefield, where boulders crouch warm as artillery, where spreading fire wakes frozen salamanders with which to scare your sister? We ran all over that piece of ground. We forgot the picnic. We jumped over narrow places in the crack and dumped armloads of snow down for the thrill of the hiss. Once, resting against a heated stone, We witnessed the ignition of a dead juniper, the lacy brown juniper not 10 yards away. It gasped, incandesced, incandesced, roared into flame and departed forever. For a moment, Swede and I had the same thought, that things in this realm were subject to spontaneous combustion. Try that on for an idea to give you the crawling heebies. But running over, she peered down the hole where the tree had rooted itself. Below lay the vein of glowing, lignite the event we'd the excuse me the event we'd seen must have happened here a thousand times before Hmm. i was thinking about the um all these ancient stories of underworlds and people being punished (laughs) when you went with the idea of the juniper tree combusting yeah setting on fire there's something like um something uh out of the uh the conflagration at the end of snow white or something <laughs> about that and also the story of um moses in the desert and whenever i imagine that tree burning it's always a little juniper tree a little juniper bush for some reason i mean like i don't know if did i read the children's bible and that's how the illustrator did it <laughs> do you how do probably you, do you think you probably see that, right? Yeah, because it's a bush, and but I think I probably do too. Now that I'm thinking about it, although mine's more like a tiny olive tree. You don't think of shrubbery? Yeah, <laughs> it's a tree, but tiny. That's how I think about it. Derail. Anyway, juniper trees have that sort of like leaning almost. Yes. Like right. they look like as if in some other, like in mythology, they were people that turned into, that were turned into trees. You know, they have that, yes, the way they lean with the limbs that look like human limbs and you know, the, the, the leaves are not all the way down. They're sort of, I know that I know there are varieties of juniper trees, but 
um, right. But yeah. But they're like clinging to the crags and they're kind of like fighting against this sort of constant wind that's blowing. That's exactly how I see juniper trees. So I feel like David, you've, you've said that my imagination is accurate. Thank you. (laughs) A sweet moment, you guys. (laughs) Of all imaginations, Tim, yours is on the more accurate. accurate. (laughs) It's on the, it's on the accurate range. What can you tell us about Tim? He has an accurate imagination. Although now that I think about it, is an accurate imagination really a compliment? Isn't I was just thinking maybe it's a contradiction in terms. Isn't the point of imagination that I guess Mm -hmm. it just you just have to define it. You'd have to Mm -hmm. define that term for me. I think it's a compliment. Uh, I I do too. Yes. An accurate imagination indicates that within the world of your imaginings, there are consistencies that make the story whole. And that's totally true about Tim. Mm, Right. Right. If you've ever seen a a Tim Tim McIntosh play. Production. yeah, a Tim McIntosh. Uh, what, what's the word for? You know how they have like a Spike Lee joint. What's what is the the uh, oh, term gosh, for yeah. a play? Other if a joint is a term for a film. We'll I need to come up with joint. something. Yeah. If you've ever seen a Tim McIntosh joint, you know that there is a consistency, an accuracy of imagination in every line. <laughs> buried down for the review. buried in buried in the yeah. subtext of Can every, you of every that piece of dialogue. Review? The New York Times reviews your joint, and they compliment it as like utterly concise and you know utterly <laughs> accurate in its imaginings you'd be like huh thanks what did i put in that play yeah. <laughs> yeah. but also it's like vague and general enough that it sounds like something a critic could say without yeah, saying right. anything <laughs> it would it would matter what came next in that paragraph i feel mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. what are the proofs <laughs> But anyway, what were we talking about? I don't know. I am like, I'm the world's worst close reads commenter because I'm just derailing us left and right here. <laughs> the world's worst? Or you're like, the wor- worst? I know. Oh, worst. Of the four. <laughs> four of us. Yeah, I am the worst. I, we were talking about this description of the underworld or, or the Badlands. And yeah, we were talking about Ruben and Swedes kind of like seeing these different you know, events and the snow hissing in the juniper of my life. Yeah, you read you read your passage, mm-hmm. and then we yeah. start talking about juniper trees, and mm-hmm. one thing led to another, and now we're at accurate imagination. Now, we, now where are we? Yeah, where are we? Okay, well, I can connect us back here because <laughs> okay, thank you, David. I, I loved the references to various painters throughout this. In fact, right before I marked up the, the paragraph, right before you. Uh, you, the, the passage that you read. Oh, yeah. um, so um, go two paragraphs before that, I guess, because it, where it says Mr. Land right here. Mm-hmm. So Mr. Land right here, Roxana said, and dad took a folded blanket off his shoulder and flung it across a flat rock by the flames. The rock was bare and dry and for radiant warmth, it was like sitting on a rooftop. Before us, the crack was more than a yard across and the fire pranced up out of it a foot high. Do you ever burn coal? It makes a white gold flame with a clean cerulean core. We leaned back on the blanket and were too warm to our joy and disbelief, even unbuttoned. Roxana, Dad said, it's a miraculous place. I never saw better. He was sitting beside her 
you know, I didn't catch this the first time, but him using the word miraculous is, is uh, interesting. Um, the firelight had restored his face to healthy color and she all French braided scarf unslung resembled an opportunity missed by Rembrandt. I looked at Swede and saw hope showing in her face and felt it on my own. So, you know, there's a lot of references to the high Renaissance, like the term of the transfiguration term and lots of references to her being sort of this figure that would show up in a Rembrandt painting or a Renaissance painting or something. And then we get the description of the place that you're, the passage that you read, Tim. And I thought, I just think it's interesting how there is a sort of painterly scene and, and like the scene itself seems like it should be out of, uh, who did the Dante paintings? Was it Doré? Gustave Doré. Yeah. So like so all, good. that feels like it's out of Gustave Doré's versions of the Inferno, right? And in fact, those are the ones that are in the Esalen translation. Uh, but then he describes her as sort of, you know, being sort of Rembrandt. It's like these collisions of these, these ways of seeing the world, which when they collide they inform our own imagination, right? Like they inform the way we see this scene. So he can take Rembrandt's work and Doré's work, which are certainly similar in some ways, but then they're very different in other ways. And the collision of those two paintings, those two artists creates a new sort of uh, canvas. And I think that that's really interesting, especially, you know, if you, if you, we could probably go, we could probably spend 20 minutes just talking about a Rembrandt painting that this seems similar to or talking about Dory and the, and the similarities between those paintings and the scene that anger creates. But then in doing that and making those things collide, I mean, that's, that's like the tradition at work, right? Like that's what great writers do is they take this tradition, all these different art forms and they push them together. And the, the collision creates this new accurate imagining <laughs> for us to experience. And I, I mean, I just think that that's so brilliant and he doesn't have to come out and say, this is why I think it's Rembrandt. Right. Or, and he didn't, he never says Dore, right. He never says the name of Dore, but because the tradition is at work, it, it allows our imaginations to do it. And he doesn't have to like be uh, too aggressive with it. He, like there's a subtlety and a f he, he can do all that with subtlety and by allowing us to read between the lines and just participate in the moment, in the scene, in the tradition. I, 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 so I love what Anger's doing the, the way that happens. Yeah. I loved that scene and that description. And I love how, you know, we've been talking about that scene as being, you know, a, a, a hellish scene. Um, but a hellscape. Yeah. A hellscape. Good. It, but it doesn't begin like that. That's mm. not what it is. It, 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 I kind of, I put the book down and thought about this for a long time because he leads with the hellscape and then he ends with the hellscape with the entrance of Anderson. And, mm -hmm. um, yeah, but in yeah. the middle there's, it's not hell for this family. It's warmth, it's light, it's transfiguration, it's connection. And I loved that. I, and I, I think that reminded me of the, you know, the kingdom of heaven is within to the pure, all things are pure to this family. Mm. This is a place of warmth where they're having an unexpected picnic and it is sandwiched in a hellscape. Um, but that's, they, they kind of bring redemption along with their need. 
So mm. like they need yeah. a lot of things from each other. They're desiring a lot of things from each other. They're, they are in hell, but it, they are not hell. They're not a part of it. I'm really glad you mentioned that because it calls to mind the line that Tim read about how you can tease your sister with the salamanders. There's something sort of... Uh, uh, yeah, pleasant and you know friendly about that moment teasing but it's kind of ironic right teasing your sister with salamanders in the middle of a hellscape <laughs> right yes go ahead tim during these scenes we're also getting these kind of glimpses from the kids looking over at roxanne maybe it's just my imagination but i feel like we've gotten more sort of um glances at what she looks like than in than from any of the other characters. Like we get that she wears a French braid and her, what is it? Her woolen um, skirt flapping in the wind. I feel like the kids keep looking over at her mm -hmm. and observing her. And it, we get these glimpses through our narrator and he's creating this kind of, I'm reading it as, these kids who have had no mother and have not complained once about not having a mother, maybe even don't even know what it's like to be like, they, I don't even know that they could articulate what it's like to not have their mother around. But when they get around this woman, Roxanne, suddenly they have this kind of, they keep looking at her. Maybe this is what it would feel like to have a mom that, takes care of you. Did you guys get that feeling too? Yes. <clears throat> well, there's that great passage on 196 at the end of the chapter before this, where they're getting ready for the picnic. And, uh, um, it's, it's, she says to them, she says, children, Roxanne replied, turning to us. And I love, I just, I love the physicality, like a little moment like that. Like she turns, she says children and she turns to them. You know, there's a, there's a like acknowledgement of them. I don't know. In in the moment, like the fact that she turns to them and says, "Children," I think I, I just love that. Though her eyes glim glittered, she was not crying. In fact, she pulled a smile from somewhere. Her hair was roped back in a French braid, from which it was very winningly coming loose, and she held before her a picnic basket with a clasped lid. For heartening sights, nothing beats a well-packed picnic basket—one so full it creaks, one carried by a lady you would walk on tacks for. Does this all make her sound beautiful to you? Oh because yeah, she right. was. Oh yes. Though she hadn't seemed so to me a week before when we when she turned and faced us as I was confused at her beauty, and I could only scratch and look down at my shoe tops as the dumbfounded have done through the centuries. Swede was wordless too, though later in an epic fervor she would render into verse Roxana's moment of transfiguration. I like the phrase, which hasn't been thrown around that much since the high renaissance, but truly I suppose that moment had been going gaining on us secretly, like a new piece of music played while you sleep. One day you hear it, a strange song, yet one you know by heart. That's it. That's so good. And I wonder, and you guys were talking about turning points. I wonder if this is sort of like a, one of those crucial moments in the story where maybe this has to happen when it does because they're going to enter into the, a greater trial next. Right. Like she, her, 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 she has this transfiguration on the mountain almost right before they're going to enter into the underworld. And, and that song being in their heart has to be in their heart now to prepare them to endure what comes next. 
And I think it's interesting. I mean, I, I don't want to make too much out of it, but I, I, I kind of get the impression that our author is so steeped in the biblical narrative that either consciously or subconsciously, the story kind of um, ends up resembling you know, aspects of the Old Testament and New Testament. I think this one's intentional. The fact that there's a moment of transfiguration before the trial begins. I mean, this is Christ's transfiguration on the mountain happens kind of before the, like the inauguration of the trial that leads to Calvary begins. You know, I don't think that's a coincidence. There are other things I'm like, maybe they just kind of bubbled up for his subconscious, you know, like the, the tree burning in the badlands. Maybe that's, you know, wasn't intended to resemble Moses adventure, but this one seems like it's a Mm. very deliberate choice. And it's really interesting that the transfiguration is um, such a maternal picture. You know, Mm. it's this, it's this woman, her hair ripped back in a French braid and she, what does she have? She has a picnic basket and she's referring to them as children. It just seems like it's this very, um, this moment that the kids have been kind of longing for this or this character that the kids have been longing for that they have not even necessarily known they've been longing for. That's what shows up in the tra- transfiguration. That's who shows up in this, this picture of a transfiguration. Heidi's Heidi's like I've been waiting for you to come along and see this Tim yes this is what's happening it just occurs to me too that he connects so earlier in the reading um, there's the the bit where they're trying to figure out the gas situation it's on 170 and it says we'd stopped 10 miles out of Mandan and parked in the lee of a shelter belt pouring in our spare 10 gallons and driven west until dad said he had to lie down he had a headache another monster or maybe the same one never truly gone away. His face was lined like a Renaissance painting. And it, it just occurs to me that like, so we first, we see the Renaissance painting reference here when his father has a headache. But then once Roxana comes into the story and starts, you know, caring for them and being this figure in their lives and all that, the, the sort of Renaissance motif of this idea mm-hmm. is almost transformed. Like it's not, He's in his, his face is lined with pain. And so he looks like a Renaissance painting, but here she looks like a Renaissance painting or a Rembrandt painting because she, she's so beautiful. And it's like this, the notion, like even the Renaissance concept has been transferred or transformed or something like the renewed hmm. almost. Hmm. And, and also it creates this connection between Roxanne and their father, you know, like as in it's this reference that's been used to describe both of them. Right. And, and which can't be an accident because it's a very specific reference, especially in a Western, <laughs> you know, it was sort of like a, at least a, a Western adjacent book. <laughs> right. Well, of course it's not an accident. Nothing in this book is an accident. Everything's crafted, but he, she, his first comparison, his first visual comparison is of her, of, is of somebody who just returned from a dog sled. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> Which I love that. I I love that whole paragraph, that little paragraph about it's hard to recall the first time we saw Roxana. Um, you know, the, it's 
I, I think this book for me, at least, would be almost unbearable if there's not things that indicate a redemptive future. Um, so every time I come across those little things, you know, Swede from the beginning, you knew she was like, not gonna, not necessarily going to be okay, but that there's she a lives. future for this. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that, that she has a purposeful, meaningful work. She's a writer as an adult. Roxana becomes, a, it's so hard for them to remember the first time they saw her because obviously she's built to last is how that, that last um, sentence in that little paragraph. And she's done real she, work. Yes, that she's going to become an important person for them so much so that they it's, it's hard to remember their first impression of her. Mm. So I think that those little embedded references to a redemptive future are anchor points in in a, a story of such intense suffering and longing i want to ask you about why it would be unbearable for you but i but hold on one second because you, wait, you, it's funny dave that you're asking that question because i've been wondering the same question also heidi why okay go ahead and say that because but i do want to go back to the what you're saying there for a second before we conclude for the day i i, I want to frame it and say i mean every book that we've done on close reads is a good book. And because it's a good book, it's full of suffering. Right. And, but it seems like this, this the suffering of this book yes. is heavier for this you. This is heavy for me. And I think that there's, you know, everybody has those kinds of books that, um, there's such a personal, for whatever reason, element to the suffering that it's, it's hard to take. It's hard for your heart to hold. And then you need that redemption. You need that in the story. So this this book I'm taking very personally, and I have really have a hard time with with stories about children who are suffering and confused and don't know what to mm. do with it. That mm. that's like hard on me to read, mm -hmm. and especially honestly, this is strange, especially about boys, because mm. I feel like the world is really hard on boys, and that girls are more allowed to be confused and somebody will help them whereas boys are kind of expected to figure it out and hopefully that's changing but I really do I have a hard time with books like that and so this book is just painful for me but in a good way because I can see it converging all those things are so purposeful and I think that's why I've avoided it I said that in the first podcast I've avoided reading this book because I knew people had told me it's about this family of motherless children who endure great suffering. And I'm like, nah, that's not for me. Like, yeah, I'll pass. I'll take so, a hard so, pass on that. So yeah. So it's uh it's a it's difficult for you because of that, but you but but you still I love you this still book. enjoy the, can you still enjoy it while yes. you're reading it? Okay. I love this book. But the reason I love this book is because I feel like there's clues that point to a redemptive future, like something is that they're going to navigate through this. Mm. And there's so many books about suffering children who don't navigate their way through it. Like there's nobody to help them. And that's the hardest thing for me. That's, that's okay. really, yeah. that, that's just hard for me to read. I have a hard time with those kinds of books. Like a lot of like coming of age books in which the, the story ends up with, you know, kind of this pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and now I'm alone, but I'm okay. Um, those are, those are hard for me. So hmm. this book, I love this book, but it's emotional. Like I am reading it. I'm emotional about it. Like hmm. all of Ruben's, that, the, the, the dream he had about the bag, the man with the, 
skin. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. All his breath. And then that's when Roxana won my heart. I'm like, I love this woman. I want her to be when, a when he woke they need up. A mother. She's <laughs> pounding his back. And she's pounding yes. his back. Yeah. Hmm. You know, it's interesting because you, they need a mother, you say, which is obvious and yet, and it's obvious and it's kind of profound, you know? Um, and because what they're lacking by not having a mother is one of those things that, like, you can't really ever say and right. be able to say it to the to the degree that it needs to be said, but then you, but then, you know, you can try to show it. And, um, in this book, we have a mother who left, right? Yeah. She, who, who's, who thinks who her Jeremiah didn't turn out to be, or to offer her the life that she dreamt of, or that she thought she was going to be to get. And for whatever reason she left. Um, and I guess we could, uh, the, the degree to which we want to try to be charitable to her may vary. Um, moment to moment. But then here we have them coming across this woman who offers something that that mother didn't, who's this sort of almost like wild figure. Right. <laughs> and who like she's, she has, they find, they go to her in the wilderness, their mother leaves, but then to find a new sort of mother figure, at least for a short time, they wind up finding this woman who looks like she would drive a sled dog team Mm -hmm. you know she looks like she'd be in the editorod and they have to go to the wilderness they have to go to the edge of the badlands to the edge of this conflagration like to the edge of the underworld to find her and there is something sort of like you know there is something sort of beatrice about her right yes which i you know maybe that but but in some way i mean she's like she's yes she's like beatrice but her visage is almost the opposite of Beatrice. I think of Beatrice is almost untouched by the world, sort of like floating about 12 feet off the ground. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. Roxanne is... Like a Renaissance ideal. Exactly, right. Yeah. Or medieval ideal. But, okay, but let's Roxanne is the opposite. It's like right. she, what is, he describes her as having... And, yeah. She's weathered. She has thistly fingers or thistly hands. She's like, that was a great, that was a great yeah. little description. But, but couldn't couldn't you say though that that in some ways, given the nature of this story and this genre, that she does fit that ideal model f- for this world that you know Beatrice would might f- fulfill for like a Renaissance, like the idea of this tough, you know, sort of Carolyn Ingalls, like sort of I don't know, like yeah, yeah, this sort of tough woman who can who can um who who whose grandfather was an outlaw basically, and and who you know, she, she can handle herself on her own and, but she can also like be motherly. Right. Mm -hmm. There is sort of something she's tough, but loving she's, she's capable, but gentle, you know, um, she, and even her gentleness has like this power behind it as in Mm -hmm. when she's pounding him on the back for 20 minutes, you know? Um, and it's, and so I wonder if when, when he talks about the idea of trans transfiguration, he says it felt like it was her transfiguration, but it feels like in a sense, it's the transfiguration of the children and the way that they see her because it says that earlier on they didn't, when he looked at her, he was almost confused by her. Right. Like he was, he didn't think she was beautiful, but then she comes downstairs and it's not, she's not just beautiful all of a sudden. Cause she's wearing a French braid and holding up, holding a uh, basket. Right. Right. But there's something about the way that they see her that is transfigured. Yeah. And, and it, and I think that's tied to this, to the concept that she is sort of an ideal within the context of this particular story and this particular genre, she meets that criteria that Beatrice meets for Dante in this sort of Renaissance way. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you buy that? I do. Yeah, absolutely. 
I do. She's a, she's a Madonna. She's, she's an Mm. ideal. And there's, they didn't go on this. They didn't go on this odyssey to find a mother to have some kind of primal wound healed, right? Like that's not what they're doing, but like everything in this story, there's, there's a, there's a thread of divine intention. Um, and it is a journey of the soul as well as of the body. And Roxana was necessary for that. Um, as, as the supernatural, you know, as all the pieces kind of come together and converge, I think they're converging towards her. What do you mean? I I think she's the, she, she's the redemptive piece they didn't know they needed. They went out on a search for Davy and they found so far, you know, that that's coming, right? But so far they found Roxana and that, at, <laughs> that's where they run out of gas, right? Like that's where the three of them can go and then they can't go any farther without her help. So in a sense, yeah, and then the miracle is almost like that they got there. Because if they had stopped yeah. for gas earlier, they wouldn't have stopped there if they hadn't, yeah. you know. And then there's a snow the night they came and Reuben almost died the night they came. And, you know, like there's this, like how many signs do we need that she is an answer to prayer that they didn't even know they were praying, mm. right? Like, so that's, that's a, she's a huge redemptive figure in the story. And I don't think that's over yet. I anticipate more and more and more. Mm. You guys, am I the only one who doesn't see? I, I have no idea what's going to happen with Davy. Heidi, it sounds like you've got kind of I like a, a picture I of have yeah. A she read the last page. I, <laughs> I <laughs> she didn't. better not have. I didn't. Nor did I look it up on Schmoop, which I have been known to do with hard books sometimes, <laughs> but I didn't do it this time. But um, I. I don't, but I do have a guess and I'll let you know. I promise I'll be honest. Whether you were right or wrong. (laughs) Yes. Will you actually, (laughs) will you remember it though? Like, you know how like you imagine a place, you know, like I I have an imagination of what Maui's like. I've never been to Maui. And then when I arrive at Maui, it's nothing like, despite my accurate imagination. Yeah, I was going to say. like what I imagined. (laughs) And then I cannot remember what I originally imagined. So Heidi, I want you to like, I want you to not forget what you think is going to happen. I'll write it down and and put it in a sealed envelope (laughs) and read it on the last episode. (laughs) It would be a dramatic reveal. (laughs) Here's what Heidi... That's completely wrong. (laughs) Maybe it's wrong. Yeah, but see, the thing is, you could just, if you open it and you're like, oh no, I remembered it wrong, you could just say whatever you wanted. So you'd have to open it and then you have to like seal Hold it on the way and mail screen. it and mail yeah. it to one of us so that we can open it on the yeah, air right. and prove that you actually are not lying about how, how, uh, pressure her are. imagination is. Yeah, That's exactly. Right. How accurate <laughs> my imagination is. All right. Well, I know Heidi, you've got things to do. Uh, so let's, we've already done the passages as a sort I'm of entryway. Important, busy person. <laughs> <laughs> Very full schedule. The fact that you felt like you had to say that might mean that it's probably not true. I know. Uh, I'm hoping that'll undermine whatever false impression was left in the minds of our readers about my importance or listeners about my importance. Yeah. Uh, well, let's, let's go ahead and do some final thoughts then. Um, do you have anything you want to, you want to say or anything that you were looking forward to besides finding out whether you were right? 
um, I kind of hope I'm wrong, to be honest. So um, I'll, I'll let you know at the end. Um, no, I actually just said my final thought, which was about Roxana and her being kind of the end of this part of the road. Yeah. Tim? That was my final thought. My final thought has to do with Seattle, where I live, getting oh. another snowpocalypse. This is snowpocalypse 2020 that came that, you know, I appreciated it because it put me immediately in the atmosphere of peace like a river <laughs> with the deep snow banks on the side of the highway. That's where I am. Do you, do, is it possible that it's the world's way of it's, it's the, it's a cosmic way of mourning with the city of Seattle because they lost to my team. I think it is. I think, <laughs> I think God <laughs> cried when they lost to the Packers. Just got of pull that into the conversation <laughs> i've been watching all the sports ball i want you to know that i have, have you really so many snacks i have so many naps it. i no. i've been actually watching it i've been sitting on the couch and what i did watch the packers and the seahawks game although tim i have to admit in my mind i did call it the packers game wait I'm what sorry. wait <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah, I'm confused. Like I call it the Seahawks game. <laughs> That's what I'm head. confused about. Yes. Why not? No, actually, you know what? You're I'm not even a Seahawks fan. I know, I know. I just wanted to kind of like play it up. I guess. I mean, if they're playing the Falcons of Atlanta, then I would be troubled that you were calling it the Packers game. But I like the Seahawks. But no, not. I'm not because totally you live there. Yeah, and we did yeah. all agree. I actually forgot about. It's not that I forgot about you. It's that I didn't associate you with the Seahawks because I've never heard you talk about that. No, that's fair. That's absolutely fair. We associate you with Hotlanta. Yeah, right. Right. And I do actually like the Falcons. I don't know why. I just do. Um, Because you're a woman of taste and refinement. I was always big. Oh, I I love Michael Vick. I loved Michael Vick. Oh, I love Michael Vick. And I had like thoughts about the Michael Vick story. This show went very far off the rails. It sure did. I was the one who was like, I have something to say about sports. There's a lot. Yeah, there's all these women out there that some of them are like very into this, and some of them are like, I am going to go listen to my other podcast now. But I do watch the Packers because of the Kearns. Now, now that the Packers are on, I'm like, oh, that. Those are, that's my friend's team. I'm totally for them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the Seahawks have been um, a source of much sports heartache for the Packers in Mm. recent years. So they were able to, um, you know, make up for that. I mean, you can't vanquish what happened in 2014, but it, it's a b- tiny bit of a scab, I suppose. But anyway, speaking of good things, I, before we go, I want to make sure to um, say on the air, congratulations to our yes. um, our fellow uh, close reader, Sarah Jane Bentley, one of our new participants. Participants. She has been, if you've been listening, you know that she was pregnant. And on the 7th, she gave birth to a little Elizabeth Bentley. Um, Sarah Jane Bentley is her name, Elizabeth Bentley. And people were noting... It sounds a lot like Elizabeth Bennett, which is true. And I think maybe part of the point. <laughs> uh, so congratulations to Sarah Jane and her husband, Toby. And on the arrival of Elizabeth, who was born on the 7th, everybody seems to be doing well. You know, there's always an adjustment period to keep their family in your, in your prayers. 
but congratulations to her. And, um, you know, she's not on social media, but I did post uh, some pictures. She gave me permission to share some pictures of, of Elizabeth on the Facebook group. So you can check out how cute she is over there. So congratulations to her. Her cheeks are ridiculous. I just want to poke her little cheeks. (laughs) Is that a mom thing? Like just poke little baby cheeks? Yes, it is. It's just a human thing. I feel like that's... Uh Tim, do yeah. you have this desire to like poke baby cheeks when you <laughs> baby cheeks that are slightly overinflated? I I do, I do. All right, yeah. fair, fair. Yeah. <clears throat> all right. Well, I guess that's all. So, uh, yeah, congratulations to Sarah Jane and Toby, and yeah, you know, keep them in your prayers. And next week, we will be discussing pages two hundred and five through two hundred and seventy-four. So it's about fifteen pages longer than we've been reading each time. So prepare accordingly uh don't wait till the, till the morning of to uh to, to read unless you have uh, you know plenty of time for heidi white for tim mcintosh and for all of us here the close reads podcast network thanks so much for listening until next time happy reading planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.